Now, Glenn Owen, whom a couple of weeks ago we took an offering to help send Glenn Owen to Lebanon to, to go over there and kind of scout the land for us. And he's back. He's safe. We, and, and by the way, he just wants to say thank you. We completely supported him in terms of his plane ticket over there. In about three weeks, he's going to let us know some of the things that were stirred up for him. He'll bring some slides and things like that. So he just wanted us to know that he's home safe and he's really, really grateful for our support. With that, uh, we're going to dive in today. Um, we're going to begin in the book of Luke. Uh, I'm sorry. Let's see. We're going to begin in the book of John, chapter 14. So go ahead and turn there. For those of you who are just joining us, maybe visiting today, we have been in the midst of a series called His Story. The whole point of this series has been to kind of step back from the individual stories of Scripture, which are all important, but to step back and begin to look at, at the Bible as a whole. It is a unified whole. It's got one grand epic narrative that runs from Genesis all the way through Revelation. God is the main character. Although there are lots of other characters that come up, those are supporting cast members. God is ultimately the central focus and character. It is his story. And really the theme that runs throughout is it's a story of a father in pursuit of his prodigal children. And as we've seen so far, we've seen that God created everything, and then he created mankind to be his representatives. He said, you know, I want mankind to represent me in the caring for of my good creation. But I don't just want mankind to represent me in the sense that I've made robots that do my bidding. I really want to have relationship with my representatives. And so in order to have any genuine sort of relationship, you need to give the other party the ability not to be in relationship, right? It's kind of like when you're passing those little notes to the girl in fourth grade and you go, Will you be my girlfriend? Yes, no. And then they go like, maybe. And you're like, what's that? So you need to have the choice not to be in relationship, to have any sort of genuine relationship. So he gives us free will, even though he knew that that would potentially give us the ability to cause a whole lot of pain and turmoil and ultimately relational friction in his good creation. And sure enough, mankind, when given the option not to obey, not to trust, chose to do just that. And although he intended for all of mankind to represent him, we didn't. And so he said, okay, if all of mankind won't represent me, then I'm going to raise up for myself a nation that will represent me. And the nation of Israel, he created in order to be his representatives, a holy nation set apart for him. And we saw as he gave Israel the law. And the, whole, the law was intended simply to say, hey, you are part of my family. You are my representatives. So I want to show you how to live. I want to show you how to live in relationship with me and with one another. But even Israel couldn't perfectly represent God. And one of the things Israel never could do is fully atone for the sins of mankind, not for themselves, nor for us. And so God took that responsibility upon himself when he came to earth in the form of Jesus, God in human flesh. And for 30 some odd years, he walked amongst us. For three years specifically, he began to gather around himself a group of guys that he poured into and invested. He called them his disciples. A disciple is simply someone who follows and learns from. It's a student of a rabbi. And he began to teach them his heart. He began to teach them about God's heart. He began to show them how scripture in the Old Testament actually reveals God's heart. And then at the end of that three-year public ministry... He gave himself as the once and final sacrifice of atonement so that he took upon himself the penalty that we had earned for ourselves. 
through our disobedience. Because the fact is, God is a just God. He can't simply turn a blind eye to rules. He can't turn a blind eye to the ways that we have fallen short. But at the same time, he's also a loving God who doesn't simply turn his back on those of us who have gone astray because he'd pretty much be turning his back on all of creation. And then we watched, though, as God said, you know what, just because you weren't capable of of atoning for your own sins, just because I've had to take over that component doesn't mean that you don't have a part to play. In fact, if his whole goal was to get us back into relationship with himself and that's it, then why doesn't he just whisk us into heaven the moment that we bend a knee and say, okay, I submit, God, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. But he says, I have a purpose and a plan for you. And that he pointed out in Matthew chapter 28. That's what we actually looked at last week. And so don't turn there, but let's go ahead and throw it up on the screen. For those of you who are nearsighted, I apologize. But this is the great commission that we looked at last week. Jesus came to them, his disciples, and he said, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In other words, he's saying, listen, I'm going to go back to be with the Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I want you to carry on what I've been doing. The ministry that I have been in the process of doing, of advancing the kingdom of God, I want you now to be the stewards of that. And if I was, the, if I was one of the disciples sitting there that day listening to Jesus, saying, hey, I'm going, but now it's your job to continue doing what I was doing, I would feel overwhelmed. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, okay, wait a minute. I'm not you, Jesus. Okay, you're God. I'm not. You're kind of perfect. I'm not. Just ask my wife. Okay? I don't have it all together. I can't do this. And I think that Jesus was well aware of their hesitancy, well aware of some of the doubts that they might have had because the last thing he says in the midst of that is, don't worry, surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Which begs the question, well, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that he's with us in memory alone? Like we're just supposed to remember who he was? And Because I'll be the first to admit that I, my memories fade and... You know, the, the problems of the moment tend to eclipse the memories I had back there. You know, if that's the way he's with me, I'm not feeling all that confident. Is it the scriptures that speak about him from the Old Testament to the New? Is this the way that he's with us? Because, yes, the Bible that has been breathed by the Holy Spirit and reveals God's heart is tremendously important for us. But this same scripture that reveals God's heart also reveals just how far I fall short of God's example, of Christ's example. And so I'm left going, is this the way that you're with us? Because it's good, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to represent you well. But in fact, Jesus intended something even more intimate even in his scriptures. And in John chapter 14, we read about exactly what he meant. This is a conversation that Jesus had on the night that he was ultimately arrested. The very next day he was going to be crucified and he knew this. And so he begins to console and encourage and prepare his disciples, whom he'd been walking with for some three years. He begins to prepare them for his absence. And he says this in verse 15 of John chapter 14. If you love me, then keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Holy Spirit of truth. 
Now, the world cannot accept him. Now, I want you to notice that every time he talks about the Holy Spirit, he doesn't refer to it as an it. It's not just a, 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 an ethereal force, kind of like the force from Star Wars, right? This is a being, a person. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now, I really want to draw out two words from that, from what Jesus is just saying here. Two words, and those words are another advocate. In the Greek language, there are two words that he could have chosen to to refer to another. One is another of a different kind, like when my boy goes, Daddy, I don't like spinach. Can I have another vegetable for dinner? The other Greek word is one of the same kind, like, Daddy, can I have another cookie? And it's that word that he chose, another of the same kind. So he's saying, hey, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to simply abandon you. I'm going to send you another advocate just like me to walk with you and be with you. Now, which then begs the question, well, what does, it mean? What does he mean by an advocate? What does that word mean? The original Greek word that he uses there is parakletos or paraclete. And a paraclete is simply somebody who comes alongside. Think of the, all the people out, out there in the heat right now who are running the marathon, right? And as they're hitting mile marker 20 and their bodies are just going, I'm done. And somebody walk, runs up alongside and goes, all right, let's keep going. You can do this. You got this. And that paraclete is somebody who runs alongside and encourages and pushes on. Other translations take that same word paraclete and rather than choosing advocate, they translate it comforter or counselor, or even helper. All of these things kind of begin to paint a picture of what this paraclete, this one who comes alongside, will be. He's somebody who will encourage us, empower us, help us. In fact, Jesus goes on in chapter 14, if you jump down to verse 26. Actually, we'll start with verse 25. He says, All of this I've spoken while I was still with you, but this advocate... This one who will come alongside the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit's intention was to help us along and continue to bring to mind the things that God has taught us. To act kind of as our conscience, speaking into our lives. And one of the best ways that I've ever, you know, because we begin to go, well, how do I know if the Holy Spirit's speaking to me or if it's just like the burrito I ate or, you know, if it's the enemy who's actually planting these thoughts, which is a really important question. And the best description I ever got is, listen, the Holy Spirit will convict you, but the enemy condemns. So if you're feeling condemnation, if you're feeling man, if anybody knew about this, they'd be disgusted. That's not, from the, that's not from the Holy Spirit. That's from the enemy. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit will never impress something on our hearts that contradicts with God's Holy Scripture. So there's two very clear ways that we can begin to identify where the Holy Spirit is speaking versus where that burrito or the, you know, the enemy is, is kind of speaking into our lives. But the whole point here is that this advocate, this helper, will come alongside of us and will not only be with us, but will literally be within us. God with us, speaking to us, guiding us, directing us, empowering us. And if you'll jump over to chapter 16, I'm going to just read one verse out of here. This is in the same conversation that Jesus has been having. Again, this is one of the longest recorded conversations that that Jesus has with his disciples, which makes sense. He's about to leave them. They're about to kind of watch as their rabbi is crucified in front of their eyes. They're going to be scattered. 
And he's trying to encourage them and prepare them. And he says this, and he actually points out that it's going to be good for them that he takes off. Verse 7 of John chapter 16. Very truly I tell you, it is for your own good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, this advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Let me get this straight. Are you suggesting, Jesus, that it's actually better for us to have the Holy Spirit than to have you in the flesh? And in fact, I think that's what Jesus is implying. Yes. Let me play devil's advocate here for a second, though. If Jesus stuck around in the flesh, I mean, think of all the things he could accomplish. He could teach with authority. He could heal people. He could cast out demons. He could raise people from the dead. He could prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that God's not dead. And he could tell us all the ways that Aaron Arfonsky's, you know, thing of Noah is completely off base. He could basically be the president if he wanted to, except that he wasn't born in America, so that wouldn't work. But he could be the Pope. He could be the only Pope we ever had. We'd never have to vote for another one. He could just be it. Why doesn't God go that direction? But as I look at Scripture, from Genesis all the way through, one of the things that I see over and over again is that God is constantly choosing to use us, mankind, to represent him. From the very beginning, he says, listen, I'm going to create mankind in my own image. He could have run the the world by himself. He doesn't need us. And yet he chose to use us anyway. And he says, you're going to be my representatives. And then when we chose to disobey and things kind of fell apart, he said, okay, Israel, you're going to be my representatives. You are going to represent my heart to mankind, which they didn't do perfectly. But he has this heartbeat of constantly using us, constantly inviting us into this process of being his representative. And I guarantee you that if Jesus were around today, I, for one, would be a, take a pretty passive role. I would step back and allow him to advance his kingdom. And one thing about God that I realize as I read through scriptures, he doesn't want us taking a passive role. He doesn't want us just standing back and letting others do the work. He says, I want you to do the work that I've called you to do. But he never says, I'm going to send you out as sheep in wolves clothing to try to go and change people's hardened minds. And, and transform spiritually deadened hearts. I'm not going to try to get you to do that on your own because guess what? You are completely and utterly incapable of ever doing this on your own. And so he says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I am going to give you another advocate just like me. The only difference is, whereas I would walk alongside of you in the flesh and there's only one of me, the Holy Spirit will literally reside within each and every one of you. And you become a living embodiment of the Spirit of God. You become a living embodiment of my heart to those you interact with in your workplaces, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your schools. How is God going to reach college students? He's going to dress some of his kids up as college students and he's going to send them to college. How is God going to reach attorneys? He's going to dress some of his kids up as attorneys and he's going to send them into the legal field. How is God going to reach people on Rochester Street? He's going to dress some of his kids up as people from Rochester. Okay. (laughs) Maybe this isn't theologically true. I don't know. (laughs) 
he basically says, I'm going to empower you to be my representatives to a hurting, sin-scarred world. But first, I needed to do work within you. And I know that you cannot do this by your own strength, so I'm going to empower you. Go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 1. After Jesus rose from the dead, uh, he spent about 40 days interacting with his disciples, encouraging them, teaching them, preparing them for ultimately him heading back into heaven to prepare a place for them. And and remember, he's charging them, you guys are going to be my representatives. You guys are going to be the ones who are going to continue to do the ministry that I've been doing. And he says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with his disciples, Jesus gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will literally be filled with him. They're going, okay, well, what does this mean, though? When are you going to ultimately bring about your kingdom and and bring all things new and all that kind of stuff? Verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, don't try to go and be my representatives by your own strength. You're just going to fall flat on your face. I want you to wait. And I will empower you with the Holy Spirit, God within you. And when that happens, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you will go and you'll represent me in Jerusalem, where you reside, kind of like saying here in Costa Mesa and in Judea, in the surrounding areas, kind of like saying in California and in Samaria to those places that you would not normally go. Maybe we could say down to Mexico or up to Compton or something. And to the very ends of the earth, you will be my representatives. As you are going along, as you are interacting with people, you will be my representatives, not because of your own strength, not because of your ingenuity, not because you have something about your own skills and abilities that makes you capable, but because I will be with you. I will be in you. My spirit will guide you and give you the very words to say that when, so that when somebody says, what the heck is different about you? A, there will be something different about you at all to cause them to ask that question. And then B, I will give you the words to answer. When people ask you those questions, my spirit will guide you and be with you. You know, I I do want to mention that the Holy Spirit isn't something that's new. It's not something that God just cooked up after the, you know, the cross and God saying, oh, I missed my son, so I want to bring him into heaven. So, you know, I need to give something else as a token of his presence. The Holy Spirit has actually been living and active throughout God's creation, all throughout scripture. The second verse of the Bible, in fact, talks about the Holy Spirit. It says, In the beginning, the world was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep. The Spirit himself was active in the formation of the world. And then as God began to raise up a people to represent him, it was the Holy Spirit that would anoint the leaders of those people to be able to lead. When kings were anointed, they would take oil and pour it over their heads as a tangible symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon that leader to lead his people how God wanted them to be led. And when the people began to go astray, the Holy Spirit would come upon prophets who are just men who are anointed by the Spirit of God to begin to speak the words of God as the Holy Spirit led them. 
And these prophets would call out the kings. These prophets would call out the people. And it wasn't, when I say prophet, I don't just mean somebody who talks about what's coming in the future. I mean somebody who is willing to speak into what was going on in the present. This is what's going on. This is what you need to be aware of. This is what you need to see, which is probably why prophets weren't always the most popular people, because we don't like having our stuff called on us. And then furthermore, we do know that all of Scripture is God-breathed, that the Holy Spirit inspired the men who ended up writing the very Scriptures that reveal God's heart to us. All 66 books of the Bible were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has been busy and active throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of history, with God's interaction with us. And now Jesus says something truly amazing. He says that spirit that has been bringing order to the chaos, that spirit that has been leading the people through my leaders and has been speaking the truth through my prophets, that spirit is going to be given to every man, woman, and child that calls Jesus Christ not only their Savior but their Lord and submits their life to him. The Holy Spirit will be given to every single one of my followers, which is huge. And he does it for two reasons. There's a a lot of reasons why God gives the Holy Spirit, but I really want to pull out two of them this morning. The first reason that God gives the Holy Spirit is because it is the first taste of what we have to look forward to in eternity, namely an intimate relationship with God. So often I think that when we talk about eternal life, we're thinking about what happens after death, right? We just kind of have to slog through this really broken world in a lot of pain, and things don't go the way we want. We have to wrestle with sin and all that kind of garbage in our lives. And then we die, and finally, ah, we get to be with God. The reality is God is saying, yes, there will be intimacy, but you don't have to wait till you die to have a relationship with me. I am giving you my spirit, God, to live and reside within you. And if you're willing to listen and you're willing to submit, we can have a relationship here now. Eternity can start today. And your life will begin to be transformed. So that's the first reason that the Holy Spirit is given that I really want to focus on this morning. Is it's God saying, I'm with you right now. In the here and now. The second reason the Holy Spirit is given to us is to empower us to be his representatives in the world that we live in. This broken and sin-scarred world that we find ourselves residing in the midst of. Because we can't do it by our own strength. And I want to point out that this is not something that's just given to a couple of people, not just to kings and judges and prophets. The Holy Spirit is given to all of us, which led A.W. Tozer to write, can we throw that quote up there? This is from A.W. Tozer. The spirit-filled life is not a special, deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. We all get the Holy Spirit. If you say, Jesus, I, I need you. I can't do this by myself. I want you to save me from the brokenness of this world. I don't want to spend eternity separated from God. But furthermore, I I need you to be the Lord of my life. Even here and now, I need you to be the captain of my ship because I've been doing it and I've been doing a great job. Would you come into my life and would you begin to clean house? It is the Holy Spirit who will come into us and begin to do that internal work of transformation. And it's something that happens from the inside out so that as he begins to work on our heart, as he begins to remove the heart of stone that says, I am in charge of my life. And he begins to replace it with a heart of flesh that is able to understand the heart of God and is willing to submit. Then all of a sudden our lives will look different and the fruit that our lives produce 
will be different as well. He will literally fill us up. Wayne Grudem, in in his systematic theology, writes this, and I know it's going to be pretty small and hard to see, but this is what he wrote. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the immediate presence of God himself, and it will result in feeling what God feels, desiring what God desires, doing what God wants, speaking by God's power, praying and ministering in God's strength, and knowing with the knowledge that God himself gives. And I read this and I go, yes, okay, the spirit in me is going to radically transform me, but (laughs) I will be the first to admit that I often don't do what God wants me to do. What I desire is often not what I think God desires for me. And the words that I speak very often aren't kind and edifying. I recognize that there's something in me that resists the Spirit's transformative work that he wants to do. And I'm not the only one who recognized this. In fact, Paul, one of the guys who wrote the majority of the New Testament, identified it as well. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. This will be the last place we go this morning. Paul was well aware of the fact that there was something in us, this kind of battle that goes on between our flesh and our spirit. Both of them vying for control of our lives. And by the way, uh, Galatians, it's General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So it's the first of those four. It's after 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. So Galatians chapter 5, and he's talking about what it looks like to live our life by the Spirit. And we're going to begin reading in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5. He says, I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever it is that you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, then you're not under the law. You know, as he talks about this, it reminds me of this old Cherokee proverb basically as it goes, there's an old Indian brave who's talking to his grandson. And he goes, son, within me, there are two wolves that are vying for control of my heart. One wolf is evil. It's full of bitterness and envy and rage and selfishness and lust and self-centeredness. The other wolf is good. It's full of love and joy peace, graciousness, generosity. And these wolves bite and scratch and try to, to cause the other, force the other into submission. And this battle that goes on within me, it goes in, on within every single other human being, including you, my son. And his grandson looks up at his grandpa and he goes, well, which one wins? His grandfather says, the one you feed And Paul is well aware of this fact as he continues on here in in verse 19. He says, listen, the acts of the flesh, they're obvious. 
Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions and factions and envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. And I warn you, as I've done before, that those who live like this, those who begin to give into the flesh, those who continue to focus their energies and their attentions there and say, I will allow you, flesh, to guide and direct my actions and my thoughts and everything about me, Those who live like this won't inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of submitting to the spirit within us and beginning to pursue it, and we we will never do it perfectly this side of the grave. But those of us who submit to the spirit and begin to give into what the spirit is trying to do within us, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things as these, there's no law. And he goes on, if you'll jump down to... Chapter 6, in verse 7, he says this, Do not be deceived. God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh, then from the flesh will reap destruction. If you give into the flesh, then you are going to reap the fruit of the flesh, and ultimately that ends in our destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. There is a battle that goes on within each of our hearts, vying for control of us. We have a fleshly part of us that does not like to die. And we have a a spiritual component to us that so desperately wants what God wants for us. And these two things conflict with one another. Now, we cannot win this battle by our own strength. The Holy Spirit works within us to continue this act of sanctification. And I love, I keep going back to Hebrews chapter 10, and you don't need to go there, but there's this verse in Hebrews chapter 10 that talks about what Jesus did on the cross. And he says, by one sacrifice, namely Jesus hanging on the cross, he is made perfect forever. In other words, he's justified. Those who are in the process of being made holy those who are being set apart or sanctified. Those are two big Christianese words, but basically saying when God looks at us, he doesn't see the sins that that mar our hearts. He sees a son. He sees a daughter made perfect by the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet we are every single one of us in this process of continuing to be set apart in God's likeness and to be more Christ-like. I'm not there. Lee's not there. Merv and Jean Grady aren't even there. We are all in this process and we will never be there this side of the grave, but we have a part to play in this. I mean, if I have to like kind of wrap my arms around everything I'm trying to say this morning, it it really boils down to this. God has invited us into a relationship with him. God has invited us. He is in the process of redeeming his creation, but he hasn't just said, hey, listen, I can do it better than you, so I'm going to do it by myself. He basically says, I want you to participate in this with me. You have a part to play. But I recognize that you can never do this by your own strength. You will never represent me well simply trying to do it through your own sheer grit and determination. So I'm going to enter into your reality. I'm going to enter into your hearts, and I'm going to begin by shining a light on those areas of your life that live in conflict with the lordship that I want in your life. I don't, I'm not satisfied simply being your savior. I want to be your, your lord as well. And there are parts of your life where you, you kind of like to say, okay, come on in, clean house, just don't go in this room. 
right? Just don't go there. He goes, would you let me be the Lord of that as well? Would you let me go into those dark places? And so often I feel like we want to try to clean ourselves up and get us to be okay before we let him in. And it's just the opposite. He's the divine physician. He's the only one who can actually do that. Who can actually begin to clean our lives up and begin to get the junk out. But it's for a reason. Because he wants to use us to be his ambassadors of hope and reconciliation in this broken world. And yet we have the ability to resist the work of the Holy Spirit in us. As much as God says, I'm going to give you my spirit to be able to set you apart and create within you a a, a sanctified, holy lifestyle that other people will go, what is different about you? I want some of what you got. But in order to get us there, he gives us his Holy Spirit to clean house. And yet we have the ability to resist the Holy Spirit's work. And there are a lot of things that come into our lives that can hinder the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to point out a couple of them as I'm kind of wrapping up here. The first thing that can absolutely hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is sin and disobedience. When we give in to the yearnings of our flesh, when we give in to the things that the world says, hey, this is okay, this is good, and the Spirit within us is crying, don't do it, don't go there. Kind of like a, as a parent, I watch my boys doing things, and I, and I know it's going to hurt. I'm like, don't go there, honey. Don't touch that. Don't hurt it. Don't push that kid. You know, Ethan's running, and there's another kid right next to him. I'm like, please don't put your hand up. Please don't put your hand up and push. And we want to protect them. But when we give in to the sin in our hearts, when we give in to the flesh and do what is contrary to what the Spirit is calling us to do, it's almost like we put these noise-canceling headphones over our ears shame and guilt or even the hardness of our heart and apathy are the white noise that preclude us from being able to hear the still small voice of the Holy Spirit within us. And then we wonder why God seems so distant. We wonder why the Spirit doesn't speak to us. It's because we have resisted Him. It's not that God has left us. It's because we've turned our back and are are trying to be the captains of our own ship. So sin is certainly something that can form a hindrance to the transformative work that God wants to do in us. But it's not the only thing. Busyness and noise are another huge way that we hinder the Holy Spirit. I mean, we live, we live in a society that is ridiculously busy. I don't know if you guys know that. I, I, I talked to Jim, who just has moved back over from Hawaii. The pace of life here is a little different than it is on the islands. And yet I don't think we really recognize just how driven and busy we are because we're kind of like fish who don't realize that we're wet because we don't know anything other than what we're in, right? We, just, we have no concept of wet because all we know is water. All we know is busyness. We run from thing to thing to thing. We fill up our schedules. And when we don't have something to do, we have flat screen TVs with hundreds of channels that we can unplug into. We have radios in our cars with hundreds of channels that we can turn on and fill up the, the noise or fill up the silence with noise. And we have personal computers that we carry around in our pockets. So in those moments when we can't sit on the couch and we can't sit in the car, we can still fill up every single nook and cranny of free space with noise. And then we wonder why we don't really hear the Spirit speaking all that much. 
then we wonder why it just feels like we, we, we drop into bed every night absolutely and utterly spent. And yet, we can't really remember what we accomplished or what we did that day. And we certainly don't feel intimacy with God. And I don't know what the answer is. I'll be the first to say I am the most guilty of this. And when I tend to teach, I tend to teach on things I need to learn. And this is something I desperately need to learn. Kathy, stop nodding. (laughs) But this week, I just want to give a couple of challenges. See if some of you guys are willing to, to try one of these. Perhaps what it looks like to carve out space. Because I think that what we need to do is ruthlessly carve out space for silence and stillness in our lives. So maybe this week when you're driving... Rather than turning on the radio and listening to sports or talk radio or to music, just drive in silence. Don't even turn on the fish or air one. Drive in silence. Maybe God's going to lay something on your heart, in which case pray for it for sure. Have a conversation with him or just drive in silence and get used to the noise of nothing. It's going to seem pretty ear-shattering. It's really uncomfortable. Um, Maybe another way carve out some space for silence in your life this week might be to shut off the television or in fact don't even turn it on when you put the kids to bed leave it off maybe spend some time talking to god maybe sit down on the couch with your sweetie and just spend some time having a conversation about the day and catching up and maybe spend some time praying with one another i know it's very very difficult one of the major things i talk to couples about one of the things that kathy and i struggle with is praying with one another Oh, there's never time to do it. Maybe this is an opportunity to do it when you're not laying in bed trying to stay awake and you find that you've fallen asleep halfway through a sentence and the other one is already asleep so they didn't even realize that you fell asleep in the mid, middle of your prayer, right? Spend some time when you're still somewhat cognizant talking with one another and with God. Or thirdly, when you come home, and Kathy, don't hold me to this, put your phone down. Put it on the, the charging dock, turn it off, whatever. Put it down and just be present with your family. Just be present with the people in your home. Just be present with whatever is going on. And when you find yourself sitting down and you've got nothing to do, that's okay. You're not going to die. Basically, the point I'm trying to get across this morning is we need to ruthlessly carve out some space to listen. Because if we don't, then we're just going to continue to go through life like we're on a roller coaster. And we're going to be so radically dictated by the circumstances of our life. And we'll never be able to step back and kind of recognize where we are and where the Spirit is trying to lead us in that. The last point I want to make this morning as the worship team comes forward is this. We cannot do this by our own strength. Nothing of any lasting worth is going to take place simply by our own attempts to fix ourselves. I've tried. It doesn't work. I can do it for a couple of weeks, but I cannot fully transform myself through my own attempts and my own energy. In Zechariah, God says this, it's not by might nor by power that anything lasting happens. It is simply through my spirit, says the Lord. It's not by our energy or our attempts that we will ever transform our lives, but it is simply through the Spirit of God working in and through us that any radical, lasting transformation is going to take place. Jesus said something almost the same in John chapter 15. He said, listen, I am the true vine that gives you life, that sustains you, and you're a branch 
And if you will abide in me, if you will remain in me, if you will draw near to me and, and draw your sustenance from me, and if I abide and remain in you through my Holy Spirit, then your life will bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But apart from me, on your own strength, you can accomplish nothing of any lasting value. That's the point this morning. God wants to use us. But we are completely worthless to him if we don't allow him to do the work in us so that he can then do the work through us. And that only happens by the Holy Spirit within us. And so for some of us this morning, we just need to recognize that we have God residing in us. And we can have a relationship with God here and now. You don't have to wait until you shuffle off this mortal coil to be able to have eternity crash into your reality. Maybe for some of us, we need to recognize the ways that we have been grieving the Holy Spirit. The ways that we have been rejecting His still small voice in our lives. Saying, no, I appreciate that, but I'm going to do it my way. And then we get upset with God when we reap the fruit of our own choices. When we begin to see the fruit of our flesh bearing out in our lives. And then for some of us, we just need to recognize the ways that we have been kind of putting on the blinders and putting on the noise-canceling headphones, the ways that we have been tuning out because of all of the other distractions. And we just need to ruthlessly decide today to carve out space to listen. In the back, I'm going to have a one-page kind of guided uh, quiet time. I want to encourage some of you this week to grab this on the way out. And it'll take about 20 minutes. So you just spend some time sitting with God. I'll have it at the back. It won't be there right now. I have to go print it out. So hang here. Spend some time worshiping. And when you're heading out, I'll have it for you, all right? And let's just spend some time now worshiping. Jesus, thank you so much for what you did on the cross. And I thank you, God, that you know us well enough to know that we can't do this by our own strength that you know that we desperately need you to do the work in and through us so that we can then be used by you to be ambassadors of hope and reconciliation in this broken and sin-scarred world that we find ourselves in. So would you, Holy Spirit, be released into our hearts? Would you, do, would, would you help us to stop resisting you? We want to be used by you, but first we want to be transformed by you. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.